So, not a, uh, not a touchy-feely passage this morning. If you've ever, ever read this parable before, it's, it's um, certainly a little gripping, a little coarse in some ways, but it is a, it's a really important passage. And as we're continuing in this series, that's a, a three-part series, we are looking uh, first last week at a generous God. And we saw that mainly that is pictured, uh, one of the main places that is pictured is in the Old Testament when Abraham, the founding father of Judaism, uh, comes and sacrifices or attempts to sacrifice or is willing to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, whom God commands to sacrifice. And right before he does, God intervenes and provides a sacrifice in place of the son and provides generously, not just for Abraham and Isaac, but as Pastor Casey laid out last week, for all of us, that the promise to Abraham is to have a a boy one day that would make all things right and pay the penalty for our sin. And this week we move on to a, a different aspect of God's generosity, which is his forgiveness. So if last week was a generous God, today we we focus and see a forgiving God. And this parable in Matthew 18 is one of the best parables to exemplify that. It's one of the most gracious parables in all of the Bible. And it's also one of the ones that probably will stick with you the most, hopefully after you read it, because it turns inward very quickly on you as Jesus gives it. So at this point in Matthew's gospel, as he's writing, he's describing uh, what Jesus taught him and what Jesus taught everybody around him. And that is, at this point, a, uh, a certain discussion. Jesus has, in the Gospel of Matthew, five different main discourses. This is the fourth of them. And uh, in it, Jesus describes, he pictures, what is to be his new kingdom community. So Jesus comes as king, as Matthew mainly paints him. And as king, he starts to talk about how things should work, how his government should work, how his um, relations between his servants should work, and how the economy works, and all sorts of things. This point in Matthew 18 describes, in a very condensed way, how his people are to interact with one another. And as he does that, he, he gives a parable to help illustrate it. And of course, there's questions about it. And at the root of it, it involves forgiveness, which I think is instructive to us because it says that in Jesus' new community, he thinks already that, re- that forgiveness is required. It's not like his new people, his new community don't need, don't not need forgiveness. I say that in a confusing way, double negatives. His people need forgiveness, every single one of them. And so before he goes to the cross, and as he starts to describe this community, he will give some instruction for it. And like I said, at the core of this is Jesus' point on forgiveness. And as I was reading this passage, and we're going to dig into it and get into a lot more detail here in a second, but of course I was forced to think about times in my own life when I deeply needed forgiveness. And one of them, uh, among many, stands out. And uh, it involves my wife, or at least my now wife. Back then, uh, she was just a friend, a good friend in high school. 
And one of the benefits of knowing somebody so long like that is uh, you have just a great depth of history in knowing each other. One of the negatives is that they know you as you used to be. And, uh, and, and this is certainly one of those. So, so years, years ago, I, I don't even want to tell you how many years ago, but years ago, we had a, a basketball game for our, our church, which I don't know if it had the most godly intentions, but uh, because we were playing against another church, and I, I think we just wanted to beat them, but we lost, so it didn't go too well. After the basketball game, we ended up coming back to a, a friend's neighborhood and just kind of playing around like teenagers. And, uh, man, teenagers can do dumb things, certainly. And, uh, and I did that night. So we're, we're just running around the neighborhood. One of our friends has a Jeep Wrangler, and so we get the bright idea. We don't have anything to do. We, we just had a lot of fun. We have a lot of energy. Let's push a Jeep. Let's see how fast we can push this Jeep. So uh, of course, the, uh, the guy who's driving the Jeep turns the Jeep off, puts it in neutral so we can push it, and uh, we're going to see how fast we can get this thing going in the neighborhood with other people around. Fortunately, there were no cars or other people, but um, in order to push it, we had to get out, so we, we jump out of the Jeep, and as we get out of the Jeep, I, uh, I had the coveted shotgun spot, which in high school is, is like the throne uh, because someone's always driving you around, so... So I, I always made it my intention to, to get the uh, shotgun seat whenever I could, and I had it, but I had to get out to push, and everybody got out. And as we were pushing, I don't know how fast we were going. It, it felt real fast. It was probably like five miles an hour. But um, we're pushing, and then the, uh, the driver hops back in because he realizes that at this speed, he's going to have to steer some. <laughs> we can't leave this thing unattended. So he hops back in, and... Uh, and then somebody who uh, was next to me and behind me was my good friend, Andrea, my now, uh, now my wife. And, uh, and, and I saw in her eyes this idea. And the idea was, John's not in the shotgun city anymore. And Tristan just jumped back in the drive, so I'm going to take the shotgun seat. And it all happened so fast. But... Uh, in that moment, I realized I was about to lose something that I really held in high value. And, and because of that, I just reacted. And uh, there wasn't like malice in it necessarily, but I, I reacted. And I reacted so fast that she couldn't remember what had happened. And what had happened was um, I saw her reaching for the seat. So I put my hand up, grabbed her shoulder, and pulled her down. And I think pushed her down once I got past about this level. And, uh, of course, she didn't get the seat. She didn't get the shotgun. Uh, but more importantly, more traumatic, uh, she fell down under the Jeep. And so the Jeep then began to roll forward. Uh, and her laying on her right-hand side, the Jeep rolled up her foot all the way up to her inner thigh and then back down to her calf and stayed there. And uh, like I said, things happened very quickly, so I then uh, just had to figure out what to do to help, and everybody was trying to figure out what to do. Andrea's screaming, everyone starts screaming because she's screaming, they think she's dead, she's not dead. She just has a Jeep on top of her. <laughs> and, uh, and so you take a moment there to figure out what you should do. And in that moment, 
what we figured we should do is not turn the Jeep on to back it off because that may cause some road rash or something. So we all figure we should lift the Jeep. Okay, so we go to lift the Jeep, and we're going to lift the Jeep off of her, and she can take her leg out while she's laying there screaming. And uh, we try, we try to lift the Jeep, but three high school boys didn't have the strength required to lift the Jeep. And so after lifting it and getting most of the weight off, we had to set it back down on her leg. And then uh, that, that didn't help the situation any for sure. Um, so then we finally figure out, okay, we're just going to push it off. Well, make sure that we push it off in the right direction so it doesn't roll on top of her. So we push it off. Uh, and then my favorite part of this was that there was, there was a, um, a high school lifeguard that drives by. He's the only person to see this. And he drives by and he gets out and he says, is everything okay? And we're like, no, everything's not okay. She's under a Jeep. Like, what's wrong with you? And, uh, and he says, it's okay. I'm a lifeguard. I know CPR. And it doesn't even apply in this situation. So we do what we can do. And then uh, we, we get her up, take her inside to a house that was nearby that we uh, had friends at. And uh, the lifeguard leaves. Couldn't do anything. But as we're in the house and we're, we're sitting and everyone's just like, oh, no, I'm so sorry, Andrea. This is horrible. Like, um, no one knows that I did anything. No one saw anything. Not even Andrea. She couldn't remember it because of the trauma. So, so I'm just sitting there and everyone's like, man, it's, I hope you're okay. And do we need to go to the hospital? We're trying to figure all this stuff out. And she's like, no, I'm okay. She calls her dad. And uh, her dad hears laughing in the background because it was a little funny at that point. And then her dad hangs up because he thought that she was joking about getting run over. Uh, and so the, the situation got a little tense and then kind of feathered out and people left. And then it was just me and her in the room. And, and I just had my face in my hands just thinking, there's no way, there's no way I could ever tell her this. And, and then, of course, she's like, no, it's okay. And I, I was like, no, it's not okay. She's like, no, it's, it's not your fault. <laughs> yeah, you don't, you don't understand. So uh, I eventually get the gumption to go ahead and tell her, yes, I pushed you under the Jeep. And then she turned to me and just this look of, of uh, fire in her eyes and and then said, you did what? And, and then I had to tell her, yeah, I wanted the shotgun seat, and I saw you going for it, so I'd push you down. And uh, we had to have quite the conversation after that. Uh, and, you know, some years later now, it actually, um, it, uh, it, it's kind of funny. But in the moment, I had, this, I, I, I had this visceral reaction where I thought, there's no way she will forgive me for this. There's absolutely no way. I've done something that is unforgivable. I nearly killed her, and uh, I, I just don't think she could handle it. I don't think she would forgive me. Well, um, other than applying for this morning's sermon, I guess the moral of the story is if you push a girl down under a Jeep, you may get a wife. So um, that's, uh, that's how it worked out for me. It took some time. But... Um, it's, I give you that story because this is the topic that Jesus will bring to us in this passage, um, the topic of forgiveness. And so I'd like to go ahead and, and move into it and give you the points as, as we go. But the main point for this morning is this, is that forgiveness is costly. 
think everybody knows that. Everybody understands it. And it is a hard reality that forgiveness is costly. It will cost you something. And as we go through this passage, we see a number of things. And the first thing that we see here is that forgiveness does not have a limit as Jesus understands it. Forgiveness does not have a limit. And it starts this way. Peter came up to Jesus and asks him, how many times will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, this is a question that is, is logical. It makes sense because Jesus just got done talking about how to deal with an unrepentant brother who sins or a repentant brother who sins and the steps to go through that in Matthew 18, previous to this. Peter then has a question which makes total sense. How many times? If you say that we're supposed to forgive a brother or sister who sin against us, how many times should we do that? But it's a little bit more complicated for Peter than just that. He's trying to do something. He's, he's got an answer in mind, and he even gives it as many as seven times. Now, this may be lost on us a little bit, but in Jewish custom, one of the things that you would do if you were a notable figure, public figure, rabbi, a, a lawyer, a Pharisee, scribe, something like that, is you would get into public and then you would ask somebody else of uh, high repute a question. And it would be a kind of softball that you just kind of lob up and then you know that they can answer and they're going to answer and then they'll give you another easy question. And it's this kind of dialogue back and forth in public where you kind of show off your knowledge and you show off your godliness. And this, I think, is what Peter is starting to do by asking Jesus this question. It's a public setting. And so he asks them, how many times should I forgive my brother? And uh, within Peter's motive here, there, there's an answer. And the answer is as many as seven times. And the, uh, of course, we, most people I know and talk to don't really think about forgiveness in terms of uh, that sort of currency. Like, is there a limit to it? But we all have that sort of question with people. And we, we live that way with people. And for the Jewish world back then, something Peter knew and was widely taught at the time was that you forgive somebody up to three times. That's it. That's the limit. Uh, and they extracted that from the teachers of the day, extracted that from Job 33 and Amos 1, where it talks about forgiving uh, three, no, up to four times is a way of saying three is, three is the number that you need to use for forgiveness. If someone sins against you more than that, you don't forgive them. You move on with your life. And Peter here obviously gives a different answer, right? He doesn't say three. He says seven. So he takes, he takes the double number of what was expected, then adds on one more for good measure on top, just to say, is it this? Now, in this kind of public question and answer scenario, here's what I think Peter's doing. I think he's actually trying to show off his godliness to everybody. And I, I think Jesus gets this because of Jesus' response. In verse 22, Jesus told him, I say to you, not seven times, but 77 times. He demolishes Peter's expectations completely. I'm sure everybody around, when they heard Peter say seven times, they just kind of stopped and were like, oh, Peter, your godliness is exceeding. You know, how could you ever be so forgiving? And Jesus just cuts it down and says, you're not even in the same ballpark. That This is not what you should have in mind. And 
it very well could be that, that Peter also is using a bit of knowledge from the Old Testament. Cain, if you remember the story of Cain and Abel, Cain kills his brother Abel, the first murder in history. And after he does that, God curses him and says uh, that if anybody kills Cain, then he will be cursed seven times. So there's this number of seven that gets placed on Cain. But more than that, there's another number that comes up from his great, 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 great grandson called Lamech. And uh, it's in the same chapter of the Bible, Genesis chapter four. And Lamech will say this in Genesis 4, 24, that if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Same numbers that are going on in this passage. I think by this, Jesus is trying to communicate to Peter a sharp rebuke and instruction for the crowd to say, if you think that your godliness maxes out at seven times of forgiveness, you have no idea what you're talking about. Instead, Jesus takes this example and reverses it and says to his disciples that they must be extravagant in their forgiveness. There's no limit to it. What they should do is take this sort of, this idea from Lamech, a man who wraps his identity up in in bragging about how mean he is to people. He says, somebody harmed me, so I killed him. Instead of having that sort of mindset, it's a reversal for Jesus' disciples to where they say, even if someone hurts me, I'll forgive them a hundred times, 700 times. doesn't matter. Jesus demonstrates to his disciples that there is no limit to forgiveness. Forgiveness is costly, and this is one of the reasons why. In Jesus' mind, for his new community, for his disciples, and the way that we interact with one another, forgiveness does not have a limit. This is revolutionary. It was revolutionary for Jesus and everyone in his day, and it is for ours as well. How can you keep doing that? How can you keep forgiving someone if they repeatedly just harm you over and over and over again? That's what we're going to see here in a little bit with the rest of the passage. But I think it's important to add a caveat here. That forgiveness does not equal trust. They're different. Forgiveness leads to trust, but it does not equal trust. And it is very possible to be able to forgive someone and not have the same kind of life that you used to have with them. If you're involved with somebody who's a a repeat offender about something, it could be any number of things, but it just doesn't stop happening. That doesn't mean you need to just lay down and take it. In the example with my wife in the Jeep, just because she forgave me doesn't mean that she would willingly put herself in that situation again. Forgiveness doesn't equal trust. And so when this happens, I think Jesus provides some instruction for us just prior to this and how to deal with sinning brothers and sisters against each other. And he walks through that. We're not going to do it this morning. But that is to say there's an expectation here that forgiveness is different than trust. And just because you forgive somebody doesn't mean that you put yourself in a position to where you let them do whatever they're doing again and again and again. There is wisdom 
and knowing how to deal with the community of God in particular. And Jesus talks about that elsewhere. So this is not a carte blanche, forgive and never do anything else. But this is certainly a statement by Jesus to say that forgiveness should be without limit. And so some questions for you about this. Do you think you're generous in your forgiveness like Peter, but are actually just doing it for show? I think that's one of the things that we can easily do with forgiveness is that we can say, well, I'll, I'll forgive a little bit. And I, just, I want everybody to know how generous and gracious I am. I want everyone to know that I'm just a loving person. But it's more than that that Jesus asks for. Or are you willing to only forgive the people you like or the hurts that aren't that significant? See, it costs something to forgive, but there's different kinds of costs. It could be something that's really small, maybe incidental, uh, or it could be something that's massive. And I think a lot of people, I know myself, I'm far more willing to forgive the light offenses than the heavy ones. Regardless, Jesus's command here is to forgive limitlessly. Jesus is saying that there shouldn't be a limit to our forgiveness if you claim to follow him. So that's the the first thing that we see in the passage. Second, we'll keep moving, is that forgiveness is costly because it's a need that we all have. We'll keep reading here. Matthew 18, 23. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. So Jesus, as he's talking about this, he'll, he'll just say, okay, Peter, I hear what you're saying. You're wrong. Here's how it should work. Forgiveness is limitless. And let me tell you a story. Let me give you a parable about how this should work. And so Jesus starts to give a parable about a king who's only referred to as a king once and the rest of the time as the master. And then uh, a bond servant in particular, a servant. Now, bond servant probably isn't too familiar familiar for you, but um, it, was, it was a way of saying that this servant was owned by this master. Now, when we think of that, we instantly think of some negative uh, slavery situations. In this world, most of the time, this was a positive thing. Uh, and depending on who you had as a master, you could have really hit the jackpot. I mean, you would have all of your needs taken care of. If he was generous and loving, he would care for you and your family. It was a good thing. And certainly in this scenario, it is a very good thing. So he gives the parable about this kingdom with a king who wishes to settle accounts with his servants. Verse 24, and when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now we just read about this and we know that the, uh, the, the servant here has racked up an enormous amount of debt and needs to be forgiven. The 10,000 talents number. I started to get really into this, trying to figure out like, okay, how much does that like translate in today? And how much did the servant have? And I think that's starting to miss the point. The 10,000 talents, each talent was worth 20 years worth of wages. 20 years. And instead of breaking all the numbers down for you, I, I think that misses the point because... As Jesus says this, he uses a particular word in Greek, which is myria. And myria is, of course, the word we get myriad from. So like tons, many, it just keeps going. And 
not only is it just the meaning, but Jesus chooses the word in Greek that was at the highest, highest position of currency. There could be no higher word to describe how much this man owed. So really, the question is not like exactly how much did he owe the master, but it was, it's incalculable. Like, how could anybody rack up this much, much debt? Which begs the question, what was this guy doing? I mean, what was he doing? There's, there's no way to even monetize really how much he lost. It's, it's uh, for us, we would probably say zillions. Like, the, the amount of money that this guy has lost, the master's money, is in the zillions. It doesn't even make sense. But the king is settling accounts, so he calls him forward, and he knows he's at the end of his rope. He's exposed. He's going to have to give an account for what he's done. The servant acts like this. Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. Sorry, verse Verse 20, yeah, 25. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold and his wife and children, all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything out of pity for him. The master of that servant released him and forgave the debt. The master incredibly decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for it. I'll let him go. And as he does that, the servant here, he says a couple things in response to the master to elicit this pity, he says, he says, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. This is totally unreasonable. There's no way that in even 3,000 lifetimes, this man could pay this money back or even half of it. His debt was way more than he could ever cover. He could ever pay. What is Jesus' point with this? It's that all of us, owe an immeasurable debt to God because of our sin. That's Jesus' point. For this servant who has abused his master's wealth and incurred so much debt, that's his point, that all of us have incurred an immeasurable amount of debt to God because of our sin. And it's no mistake that Jesus gave a parable about this where sin equates with money. This happens all the time in the Bible. One of the main ways that it happens, to which you probably know, is in Romans 6.23. Many of you probably heard this in Sunday school growing up or whatever it was. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The wages of sin. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Earnings. Wages means earnings. When you work for something, you receive payment. You receive wages. You receive earnings. And what Paul tells us in Romans is that the wages of sin is death. When you sin, you are earning something. And what you earn is death. Death compounded by death compounded by death. But he says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is probably a verse that you've heard many times, but the power of it can be lost on you. So Jesus gives us a parable to see. What's going on? And the parable is, it's immeasurable. One day, the king settles accounts, and then he asks for everything back. And if you can't give it, you will go 
away from him. You may be saying to yourself at this point, I guess if it would be true, this would be true if I believed in Jesus or God and Christianity on the whole. But I don't, so it doesn't really apply. And I can understand that line of thinking. At the same time, I don't think Jesus leaves us here with it. He, he continues. So let's go on. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So this fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Something horrible happens here. The man who was just forgiven an immense amount goes and extracts money from someone else. Or if he can't extract the money, then he puts him in prison. The forgiveness that this man received didn't change his heart. The very first thing that he does after he's forgiven, as far as we can tell in the parable, is to go out and find someone else to get this money from. And he goes to get 100 denarii out of this guy. Now, uh, in terms of, uh, you know, equivalency, the 100 denarii was a significant amount. It would be probably around $12,000. So that's something that you just don't want to forget about. But at the same time, compared to the exorbitant amount that he had racked up, it was pennies. Really wasn't much. And what, what happens here but the same sort of thing. Maybe this master uh, even, or maybe the servant even saw the way that this other servant acted. So he, he falls down and he begs and he says the same sorts of things that the first man said. He says, have patience with me and I will pay you. And in this situation, what's different is he can actually do it. The first servant, he couldn't actually pay. There's no way he could even pay half but here, this man, it's actually reasonable. He can do it. He can actually work to pay him back. And instead, the unforgiving servant says, no, I don't even want your money. I'm just going to send you to prison. Jesus contrasts the first debt collecting with the second. The master was willing to forgive the debt, but the servant was not willing to forgive. The unforgiving servant refused to give up rights to what his fellow servant owed him. And this is what forgiveness is. It's a way of saying, I'm not going to count that cost against you any longer. I forgive it. And that's what the servant was unwilling to do, unlike the master. The crazy thing is, it could have actually happened. Like he could have actually forgave him and gotten money, but he decided not to because there's something else about the servant that we're going to see here. Uh, and that's what the master pronounces that he's wicked. This isn't a guy that just wants to get his money. He wants to extract something. And for us, here's the question. Have you admitted your debt of sin to God? Or are you like this servant that, is in denial in some ways. Even after being forgiven, he says, no, I'm just going to go back to doing what I was doing. Do you understand that one day God will settle accounts with you? If we left this story back when the king released him, then we would have to conclude 
that the servant was changed by grace and lived a happy life afterward. But the mark of a changed heart is not begging, it's forgiveness. So whether for the servant or for you or for me, the thing that proves whether or not your heart has actually been affected by forgiveness is whether you forgive other people. And that leads us to the the third thing this morning, that forgiveness is costly because forgiveness must be done from the heart. It's this phrase that Jesus gives us. So let's read the rest of it. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to the master all that had taken place. Then this master, his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me and should not you have, mercy, have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. As soon as the king hears what happened, he summoned the unforgiving servant before him again. And this time he receives no mercy. But instead of pronouncement, wicked, Because of his unmerciful actions, the king has no mercy on him and hands him over to the jailers. Some translations say a little bit more than jailers, which I think is actually more accurate. They say torturers. That the king hands this man over, this unmerciful man, over to the torturers. And uh, the King James Version is even, even a little bit more rough with it and says, Um, the tormentors. He hands him over to be tormented day and night until he pays the debt. Of course, how is he going to pay the debt? He can't. Even if he had 3,000 lifetimes, he couldn't pay the debt, which means that this man is in torture forever. And this is part of Jesus' point in this parable is to say that if you live in unforgiveness towards your brother, This will happen to you. And this isn't the first time that Jesus talks this way. He does it all through the gospel of Matthew. Let me give you some some places where he does. In Matthew 10, 28, he says, And do not fear those who kill the, the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Or in Matthew 13, he says, So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Or still in Matthew 22, then the king, which is similar to what he's saying here, the king said to his attendants, bind him, the wicked man, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus tells us that if we do not forgive our brother, Or sister, we will be separated from him forever. Forgiveness is not an option in Jesus' mind for his people. They have to do it. But how? How can you do this? If Jesus commands that we forgive one another, how do we do it from the heart? Because it's very easy to do a superficial forgiveness, isn't it? I think we do that probably more than we think. I know I do. 
that I say, yeah, I just forgive you. And I don't internally think about what that means for me to actually say the debt is gone. I think we have some answer for this back in verse 24. So let me read that to you. When he began to settle, one who was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold. There's only one way that the, the master could pay this debt. It's if he paid it himself. If he absorbs the cost is one way to think about it. When you sin against other people or they sin against you, which is the point of the parable here, Jesus says there's only two ways to deal with that situation. One, you pay for it. You are going to be the one to absorb the payment. It's like money. You are in the negative. Or for the other person, for them to say, I forgive it, is to say, I'm going to absorb the debt. I'm going to pay for this. And this is what the master does. This is what the king does. This is no little thing. Keep in mind, as Jesus gives the parable, he gives the number that is at the ceiling to describe money. So he's saying, if the king can forgive this cost, it would detriment him. It would be something so significant that it may very well cripple his kingdom. It may very well cripple his kingship. This is no light thing. And I think that's how we think about forgiveness often, that it's just something that kind of goes away. It doesn't just go away. Someone pays for it at the end of the day. And this is what Jesus is saying in the, in the parable. That either God will pay for it or you will pay for it. The king decides not to hold the debt against the servant anymore. He sets him free from it. The reality of the loss of an enormous amount of money didn't just go away. It should have been the servant, but instead the king decided to eat the cost. This is, of course, a picture for us of what Jesus does in the gospel. There was an exchange that happened on the cross where Jesus paid our debt of sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21, we talk about a whole lot. But just before that, in verse 18, it starts this way, that all this is from God, this reconciliation, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is to say that we should forgive like Jesus has forgiven. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting. That's the same language. Not counting their trespasses, their sins against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Why? For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The only way that you can forgive limitlessly is by being affected like this, by seeing Jesus' cost on your behalf. It's how you have a transformed heart. When you see Jesus on the cross in faith, in your place, forgiving your enormous amount of debt, it frees you, it enables you, it gives you the power, it gives you the wealth to be able to say, I can forgive other people. I have been forgiven more than anyone can ever sin against me. That's what Jesus is saying. That, that his community, his people are the wealthiest people in the world. 
And because they're so wealthy, they can forgive. They can say, instead of making you pay that cost, instead of me harboring this bitterness and anger and resentment, instead of holding on to this power over you that I know you owe me, I'm going to forgive because Jesus has done that for me. This is what it means to live in a new community of God where we live with one another in a limitless forgiving way. You can forgive to the point of taking on the pain. So we see that forgiveness is costly. It's costly because it's limitless. It's costly because we all need it. And it's costly because it's got to be done from the heart. It can't be just superficial. It has to be meaningful. It has to be come, from, come from an internal transformation of the heart. Have you been moved by Jesus' payment for your debt? Or does that just bounce off of you? It doesn't mean anything to you. Something else practical for you this morning. Are you harboring any unforgiveness against a fellow servant, a Christian, right now? Is there something in your heart, in your life, that you say, I'm not going to give that up. I want to hold on to it because I want to make them pay. That's not what Jesus calls you to. Do you need to seek forgiveness for anything wrong that you've done? This is what Jesus calls us to in this parable and in the gospel. And if none of that moves you, and none of that is beautiful to you, then I ask you to keep this in mind, that forgiveness is costly, but for unforgiveness costs more. And that's what we see at the end of the parable. And James would say it like this, James 2.13, that for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So this morning, I ask you to consider those things, especially as we come forward to take communion. Before we take communion, we should always do some sort of self-evaluation where we, we ask ourselves, is there any unrepentant sin in my life that would make this symbol of taking Jesus' life, his body and his blood, that would make that wrong. It would be hypocritical. Is there anything in your life like that? If there is, then I encourage you before taking communion, even this morning, know it's a little awkward for us maybe, but go and be reconciled. Go and ask for forgiveness. Go and forgive. This is what Jesus calls us to. Let's do it. Will you pray with me?